Romans chapter 5. Well, I'm pretty sure all of you are aware of this situation that's been happening over at Lake Whitney. You got this beautiful house, 4,000 square foot, $700,000 home. People that bought it were assured by geologists that there's absolutely no problem. They did the inspection. Everything's fine. He's like, you know, it's built on a cliff, you know. Everything should be fine, right? Well, in actuality, things haven't been going so well. They kind of noticed these cracks developing, then cracks in the house. And they started then noticing the cliff just literally starting to fall down into the lake. And with that, it got to such a point where actually part of the house started falling into the lake, okay? So this is a bad situation all around. These people spent a lot of money on this place. And they were basically, the house was condemned, and they were given three different options. And the best of those options was you need to burn this thing to the ground. And by the way, you're responsible to pay for all of it, no matter what you choose, whether you have it all fall in the lake. It's your responsibility. It's a condemned house. I'm sorry. What are you going to do about it? So they decided February, uh, June 13th, that Friday, they burned it down. You had thousands of people watch this event. I think that the uh, Texas State uh, Department probably made all their revenue in just one week there, when everybody decided to get in their boat and to watch this thing burn to the ground. You had thousands of people taking in this particular site. Now, what would it be like if you were in that home? How many of you feel like that would be a really good idea? Like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, yeah, there's some fire, and yeah, things are kind of falling in there. Of course, you'd go, that is crazy. This would be the worst place that you'd want to be. And yet, this house It's really kind of a picture of what many people's lives are like. They are in a condition that the Bible says, in Adam. Their life is going to face utter destruction. They are spiritually dead. This is a good picture of their life. But of course, people are, you know, we don't want to think about these sort of things. And so we'll find distractions. I don't want to think about the fact that I got these huge cracks in my house or that part of my house is falling apart. I don't want to think about it. They get distracted. They might make excuses. They perhaps become delusional where they just like, they're in total denial. Like, no, 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 no. I mean, these cracks, this is a normal part of life. Your house falling in the lake. And they make all these excuses. But friends, let me assure you, being in that condemned house would lead to utter ruin. And remaining in the condition that the Bible says in Adam will lead to total destruction eternally in your life. And what we're going to look at here in this amazing passage in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, is that, that we, are, we remain condemned in Adam until we are justified by faith in Christ. And when you come to this particular section in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, you're going to see a comparison and a contrast between Adam, a literal, physical, first man, and Christ, the literal God-man, the one who existed throughout all eternity, who entered into humanity. And you're going to see them contrasted and compared. And you're also going to find that Paul is going to summarize basically everything that we've covered in the book of Romans in this section here, beginning in verse 12. Now, the contrast is this. You're either remaining in the condemnation of Adam or you are being made alive through the grace that is found in Christ. Now, when we say in Adam, you're like, what does that mean? It's kind of like if you are in an airplane, okay? So if you get into an airplane and you strap yourself down, now don't think about too too much about how that plane might even fly in the air, but once you're seat belted in, Whatever happens to that plane happens to you. 
If that plane should fly and land in Atlanta, guess where you're at? You're in Atlanta. If the plane has to make an emergency landing in Denver, guess where you're at? You're in Denver. If the plane blows up in midair, guess what happens to you? Well, let's not think about it, but that's whatever happens to the plane happens to you. What happens if you are in Adam is going to be true of you. And so let's take a look at it as we're going to compare and contrast. Look at Adam, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. So we begin with that conjunctive adverb, therefore. And what he's saying is, in summary of what has already been said, that you and I are made right with God by faith, that we have peace with God through our relationship with Christ. This is something that a faith that Abraham had. And if we have a faith in Christ, we have an absolute guarantee that God working through our trials, tribulations, is going to develop proven character, and we will realize the hope of glory, that we will one day see how God worked all things together for his good, and that we'll experience his goodness and his greatness and the utter delight of being in his presence. He says, therefore, verse 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world. And you are probably pretty familiar with what happened. But in case you're just new to the Bible and you're like, I'm not exactly sure what that actually meant, let me just kind of take you back. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God, the triune God, said, let us, plural, create man in our image. And he made man, and God actually gives Adam full dominion of the entire garden. And then he furthermore, he actually says, listen, you can do whatever you want in this garden. Which is one thing, do not eat of the fruit of the tr- from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you do that, you shall surely, what? Die. If you actually partake of the fruit of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you die. And then God created woman out of the Eve, uh, Eve right out of the rib of Adam. And Adam understood fully what God had said. In fact, he actually amped it up and he said, Eve, don't even touch it, okay? I mean, God didn't say don't touch it. He said don't eat it. Adam's like, no, we're not taking any chances here. Don't even look at it. Don't even touch it. Just stay far away from it. And Adam, you know, by the way, the Hebrew word for man is Adam. Adam. And Adam is the one who is our, the head. He is the representative. Now, what happened is, serpent, Satan takes the personification, he enters in and becomes represented as this serpent. He comes up to Eve, and he's like, hey, did God really say that, that you would die? Oh, you should never die. If you take that fruit, man, God's holding out on you. He knows that the day that you eat of that fruit, that you will be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. I mean, look at you. You're created, but how would you like to be like God? All you need to do is eat of the fruit of this tree. And she saw that it was desirable, it was pretty looking, she was good for food, and she loved the idea that she could be wise. She could be like God. And you know what happened? She did. She bit into it and ate it. 
There we've got Adam, and he's standing and he's watching this entire thing happen. He's got the machete. He doesn't use it on the serpent. He's watching this. Eve eats. He's processing all this. He's like, I remember God saying something about this. But he's kind of taking the attitude like, hey, whatever makes you happy, dear, right? He goes totally passive. You want to know where that attitude came from? Where does this, all these passive males come from? All you have to do is go back to the first man, Adam. She hands fruit over to him. He, does, she, he doesn't even enter any questions, no dialogue, nothing, no debate. He eats it, and he plunges humanity into sin. In fact, they face the implications of their sin, like it says in verse 12, through one man, sin entered into the world. Like, hey, wait, time out, though. Eve was the first one that ate it, right? Why is Adam getting the blame? I mean, why do the guys, why do we always have to take the heat for all this stuff, huh? Well, let me tell you, it's because Adam was designated as the head. He was the one who had been given the command by God. He totally disregarded it. He did exactly the opposite of what God had said, and it plunged humanity into this death. Now, it, if you're like struggling with the idea, like, well, how did that happen? How is it that Adam's action has implications for my life? There's two primary views on that. One is called the federal headship view, that that Adam is our representative. He represents humanity. He's the first man, okay? We all have our origins back down to Adam. But the other one, that is the federal headship view, a view that says that he's our representative. The other one is the natural headship view. And this is the idea that the entire human race was present seminally and physically in Adam. So what he does is then going to have carryover value to all of his offspring, i.e. even us. Now, my personal take is that it's both. I firmly believe that the scriptures teach that Adam is our representative, but it is obvious that we are related to Adam. We all come, all humanity has their origins with this one man. Now, when we talk about one person representing us, though— as Americans, uh, we don't feel so comfortable with that idea. We are rooted in rugged individualism. We have the idea that we make the choice of who I'll be, what I'll do, and how successful I will be. And the idea that one individual has, does something that has implications for all of us, that's something that's a little more difficult for us. Well, I'll tell you, for the ancient Jews, the Jewish people, they, uh, they understood corporate identity very well. And the Bible is very clear that although there is personal accountability for individual actions, the Bible presents us linked up and united far more than as Americans we generally see things. See, for the Jewish people, they would actually believe that what one of them would do actually had implications for all of them. They saw themselves related. In fact, they even saw all the other nations, whether it be Canaanite, Edomite, Egyptians. The actions of one actually represented the actions of a group or a nationality. Probably the classic example of this is the sin of a guy by the name of Achan. You remember when the Jewish people the promise, uh, were moving into the promised land? They had this very decisive battle in Jericho. God basically told them how to do it. He was going to make it perfectly clear, I'm the one in charge. You're going to do something like literally really crazy to these people, but you're going to have a complete victory. And I don't want you taking any of their junk, none of their stuff, none of their toys, and don't be coveting after all the gold and stuff that they have. Well, there was this one guy in the group who's like, yeah, yeah, I know God said that, but he didn't know about this. And he takes off with a bunch of the spoil, he buries it in the ground. 
Well, no one else in the camp knew about that. They were getting ready for their next battle, AI. They're thinking they're a clean house on them, right? Actually, they got beat badly. In Joshua chapter 7, God addresses it with them. And he said, God said, Israel has sinned. They have violated, they have violated my covenant. But who did it? We got one guy, Achan. He's the one. But yet, you see kind of a corporate identity, and God says, you have done it. Israel has sinned in my presence. And so, if you're wanting to understand representatives, and I know that we're all true Americans and we see ourselves as individuals, but yet we are somewhat familiar with the concept of being represented. For instance, we have a president. He is an elected official. And the president of a country, he signs a bill into law. And when he does that, he represents all of the people, right? Or we actually give power to elected representatives. Do you know that our representatives can actually declare war on another country? And when they do, that means we are all at war because our representatives signed up and said, this is what we're doing. Um, We also see it like in collective negotiations where you might like have, for instance, a trade union representative. He represents the entire union. He enters in negotiations. He or she is the one who signs. They make it happen. They represent the entire union. You see it in heads of state. We We have ambassadors all around the world. And sometimes those ambassadors function in a way that they represent the entire American people with what they say, how they act, what they sign, and what they do. Or another place that we see this very clearly is that when a defendant enters into a relationship with a legal counsel or a lawyer, you see, what that lawyer does, they literally have the power of attorney, the power of attorney, and they are going to make decisions and represent their client in some very significant and important ways. In that same mindset, Adam is our representative. We're related to him through family, but he is our representative, and he brings forth death because of his sin. Now, when we talk about death in the scriptures, let me tell you what he means by this. Do you guys know what the word death means? It means separation. And when Adam enters into sin, he plunges humanity into ruin and to death. And that can be experienced three ways. First of all, when Adam did this, there was brought about spiritual death, a separation between God and man. You see, you and I, we're we're created by God for God. But when we entered into humanity, when we actually were born, we inherited a nature from him, and we are separated from God. Ephesians says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And God said, the day of you eat of that fruit, we sh- you shall surely die. And we face this vast hole, like Pascal says, there is a God-shaped vacuum in our heart, in our lives. And we try to fill it. We desperately want a sense of peace, identity, satisfaction, joy, hope, strength. And so we'll, we'll search for it. We try to find it in sex, music, uh, academics, making money, education, whatever it might be, we are trying desperately to cling on to something to fill this void. And it whets our appetite for more, but it never fulfills. And that's because we have a a hole in our life that is meant for God to fill our lives. And not only do we experience this spiritual death and this separation from God, but the implications of this is that there's going to be relational breakdown. And there's implications like for the fact that we can't get along with each other 
and it all is sourced in the spiritual death. There's this relational breakdown, and what you see, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, you remember what they started doing? <gasps> Whoa, we're naked, right? And so they're all covering themselves up physically. But also, they started trying to cover themselves up emotionally. And you see that today. People are completely just trying to cover over. You can never really get to know someone. You know why? Because we've entered into spiritual death. It's our condition. And furthermore, not only they try to cover up, but the other thing that you saw that immediately started happening is you start blaming others for your problem. Remember? God asked Adam. Adam was like, hey man, you're going to talk to the woman that you gave me. You're responsible for all this. You gave this woman and that's what happened, right? Where does all this blaming come from? It's all boiled down to spiritual death. Let me tell you something else that takes place. Not only do you have a spiritual death, but you have a physical death. You have bodies that start breaking down and lead to an end where you physically die. And so you've got fallen people living in a fallen world, and our bodies break down. Now, there's this uh, woman by the name of Sarah Ames. She, has a, she recounted this situation with her seven-year-old daughter, Jessica. And Jessica, a smart little girl, they were trying to help her understand evil in the world, why bad things happen. And so they were going over Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and really helping her understand the fall of Adam and, and the implications of that. Well, sure enough, that week, Jessica got sick and so sick that she had to stay home, couldn't go home, couldn't go to school. And uh, Jessica, in a moment of just great truth for her mother, said, boy, if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, I wouldn't be sick. They just hadn't eaten that fruit. I wouldn't be sick. And, and mom was going to come in and help her, like, understand, like, well, yeah, you're understanding. It. But Jessica immediately jumped back in and says, you know, but on the other hand, if they hadn't have eaten that fruit and sinned, we'd be sitting here naked, okay? All right, so uh, we, uh, you know, she's processing that. She understood some of the implications. But when Adam sinned, it led to physical death. Still with us. But let me also give you the third aspect of when, he, when it, God says all shall die, that Adam leads us into death. And that is there is an eternal death, far worse than spiritual death and, et, uh, and um, physical death is eternal death where you are eternally separated from the living God and you face his just wrath. It is the most difficult doctrine of the Bible. It is, it is hard for us to even discuss this because it's an act of judgment that takes place eternally, and it's torment. Don't get the idea that hell is like, well, just a bunch of my friends will be there and we'll just kind of hang out. No, 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 no. It's torment. It's hell. And it's far worse than you ever imagined. And it all gets started with Adam. He brings about spiritual death. And so if you look at our text, not only that, but death through sin so that death spread to all men. It was transmitted. It's kind of like we were born into Adam and we received that sin and that further condemnation. It's kind of like Adam had a torch and he had a fire that was lit because of sin. And he literally, by virtue of his life, set the entire forest ablaze. But it all got started with one man. Or like a virus that spreads from one individual and affects all of humanity. And when it says men there, uh, anthropos, it, it actually means male and female. But he's talking about Adam being the representative. And they're using literary devices where he's saying men. And it re- refers to all people. And if you have any qu- question like, well... I'm not sure if we are really born into sin, that we have what the Bible would call depravity. 
natural depravity. All you need to do is get married and have a kid, all right? And that will actually help you in your understanding of just how sinful we are. I mean, you, you have a child, and as beautiful and as precious as they are, guess what? You discover that they're very selfish. And if they don't get their way, they throw tantrums. And like, where did they learn that? And of course, well, they learned it from their mother, right? No, they didn't. And then they get older, and guess what? They know how to lie, and they know how to steal. And you're like, I don't remember teaching them how to do this. No parent says, hey, kid, I'm going to show you how to lie. Watch this. And you, and you need to do it like this and act totally innocent and all that sort of stuff. No parent ever teaches their kids, where does this all come from? Why, it's a part of our condition that we've inherited from Adam. It's sin. And he says, all of us have sinned. And in fact, you see that in verse 12. Not only are we sinners by nature, but we actually sin because we're sinners. And all of us have a huge track record record of being sinners. Look at verse 13. He says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Okay, so when the law came, the law identified sin. It didn't introduce it. It started identifying it. So did Adam sin before there was a law? Absolutely. But all the law did is show that indeed we, we can't live lives set apart to God. What God says is holy and right, we do the opposite. And so you see that, the, that sin is not imputed where there is no law. Prior to, prior to the law coming, God didn't keep accounts of all the sin. But once he entered the law, it's like this huge ledger of every sin that we've ever done mentally, ever done physically, said, words, with our hands, eyes, whatever we've done. It's all accounted for, and it all is because we're in this condition of Adam. And he says, verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. When he says, death reigned, we, don't, we can't actually eat of the, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like Adam. We can't sin in the same way, but indeed we are sinners. But here's something, as he makes this transition and the contrast, he says of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Adam, as his, effort, his, his uh, actions affect all of humanity, there is another. There is him who is to come. Speaking of Christ, his actions have implications for many. And so you're going to see this contrast. He is a type. He is a pattern. And then in verse 15, we see Christ. So you see the kind of comparison and contrast? Now we're going to come and look at Christ. He says, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. Free gift. What is it? Look at verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Many. When we talk about free gift, it's not like you hear on the radio. And I, I love when you hear this. We have a free gift for you. For a suggested donation of $25 or more, we're going to send it like, come on, man. And, and it's Christian radio that really is the worst at this. You've always got the free gift, but it always has the suggested donation. That's not free. When God gives the free gift, literally charisma, grace gift, It is unmerited, unearned, and you simply can't pay for it. What is it? It is Christ himself. It is the gift of grace. It is unmerited favor of the one man, Jesus Christ. He actually died for the many. He actually pays the penalty for sin. And that is the beauty and the wonder of Christ. Now, you need to know something. This text teaches that there is a literal, physical Jesus. 
I know that it's very popular, especially in certain academic circles, to totally rip apart the Bible and to actually say that, oh yeah, much of it is just myth and story, starting with the first book, Genesis. But let me assure you, the scriptures are absolutely certain and clear. There is a literal, physical first man, his name, Adam, Adam. And if there's not, if, then, then if that Christ isn't real, Adam isn't real. If Adam's not real, by virtue of just logic, you'd be saying that, well, Christ isn't real. But in actuality, they both are. And that's what this text shows. Now, when it talks about Jesus, it's kind of like Adam set the whole forest afire. Jesus comes back, and he not only restores the forest, but he makes it far greater than it ever has been. And that is the wonder and the beauty of Christ. There was a Sunday school teacher who was working with a bunch of six-year-olds, and he was trying to figure out what they kind of knew about heaven and how to get there. And so he said, kids, um, I got a question here for you. If I sold my house and my car, had a big garage sale, and I gave all the money to the church, would that get me into heaven? And the kids said, no. You know how kids do that? When they say the word no in a group setting, it's always, no. Adults, no. I don't know where that change takes place. And he's like, well, he's a pretty smart kid. So he asked him another question. Well, he says, well, listen, what if I cleaned the church every day and I trimmed all the bushes and kept everything nice and tidy? Would I be able to go to heaven because of that? And they're like, no. Oh, man. He's like, great. Well, listen. What if I was kind to animals, gave candy to all the children, and I actually was nice to my wife? Would that get me into heaven? And all the kids said, no. And then he says, well, then how do I get to heaven? And one of the little boys in the back, like, wave on me, call on me, right? He says, yeah. He says, well, you got to die first. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. You, you, I guess you, you do have to die. That wasn't quite the answer he was looking for. And yeah, you do have to die first. Let me tell you something that has to take place before you die. You must put your trust and faith in Christ, else you're in Adam, and his condition will be yours eternally. Well, we're going to just kind of keep moving through these contrasts, and they kind of come in pretty rapid form, but let me give you another point of contrast. Look at verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So in Adam, we are condemned. We literally face a judicial sentence from God. But notice what he says. On the other hand, in Christ, we have a free gift. So you see that? Look at verse 16, the second half. But on the other hand, the free gift, the grace gift, arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Because of all the sin, God sends his Son... And he actually dies on the cross. He is a perfect man, fulfills all the law. He literally fulfills all righteousness, and he dies as the perfect sacrifice for sins, resulting in justification. God can declare you right with him by virtue of the fact that Christ has paid for your sins, and he has risen from the grave. It's a massive contrast. Or look at verse 17. In Adam, he says, For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. And that's what you've got. Death reigning, eternal, spiritual, physical, reigning in Adam. However, much more, and here is a key phrase. You might want to underline it in verse 17. Those who receive, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. You have to receive this 
gift. It's presented to you. You see others who have received this gift. You personally must receive the gift. You got to go from, you got to go brokenness to belief. There needs to be repentance where you're turning from sin and a reception of Christ, Jesus Christ personally, the God-man and his finished work on the cross. And here you have kind of the parallel imputation representation. You got it with Adam, his sin, our representative, all of that sin on our account, but you have Jesus Christ, literal. He is our representative. He dies in our place. You see that, the representation? And we receive the benefits of his life. We literally become his children. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that Ah, Jesus and Adam, they're like equal. No, no. Adam created, first man. Adam, what he did was destructive. Jesus, God-man, eternal, never created, has no end, no beginning. You know what? Through his work, you have redemption. And he gives us the gift of righteousness, this right status of being in God. Now, some, some, there's something real wrong sometimes with our presentation when we share the gospel with people. We, we tell people like, well, don't you want Jesus to be a part of your life? Okay? Actually, it's not that Jesus wants to be a part of your life. Not really. Your life is a wreck. Actually, God is inviting us to be in Jesus' life, to move out of yours into his and to receive him. But you've got to receive him. Let me give you another contrast. Look at verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted in condemnation to all men. Through one transgression, what happened? Condemnation for all humanity. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted in what? This is a beautiful phrase, the justification of life. God, in his declaring us righteous, it's not just a legal standing. It's a life, a life of righteousness. He not only declares us right, he, through the working of his spirit, as his son takes up residence in our life, he develops righteousness. We live differently. We live on a strength based upon the fact that we are united with Christ. And that is, that is absolutely fascinating. It is the justification of life to all men. If you want it, it doesn't mean that everybody receives this, you, you know, by virtue of the fact, well, Christ has saved uh, people, and so that means he's universally saved them, and you don't have to believe or anything like that. That's not true. You have to come to a place where you receive, just like he says in verse 17, receive him. If you do, you are declared right. You receive the justification of life. Um, let me give you a, another one here. Look at verse 19. For as though, as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Okay, so through Adam's disobedience, what happened? Many were made sinners. Humanity was made sinners. But look at this, Christ. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. When you look at Jesus, you see obedience to the Father and his will personified. Christ actually, Jesus enters into humanity. And even while he was here, he says, I did not come to do my will, but the will of the Father. His whole life was categorized as obedience to the Father and his will. And remember, in the garden, he's praying right before his beating, his mock trial, and his crucifixion. He says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. If there's any other way that this can come to pass, and yet not my will, but yours be done, his entire life is categorized by obedience. 
But it culminates when he literally goes to the cross and he obeys. And he takes God the Father's just wrath against sin. And we focus on the physical aspects. We think of the beating. We think about, man, how that must have just been excruciating to have nails ripped through your hands and your feet. And it was. But the far greater tragedy and the far greater pain was when the Savior bore our sins in his body on the cross. When God literally made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's where the real pain came in. That's where the payment for our sins comes in. And when he talks about one act of obedience, he's talking about his life that culminates on the cross. And that is what gives us life in him. And so he wraps it up with a final statement. Or in verse uh, 20 here, let me just show you this. The law came so that the transgression would increase. God gives the law, and what does the law do? Well, the law shows us that indeed we were sinners. It doesn't actually, uh, the law does, what it shows is that we are inherently sinful. We, we disobey. We are disobedient. We will not do what God had said. We live life, try to do it independently from him. Now, the law, when God gives it, is not flawed, Okay. It has, there's no problem with the law. The law had a purpose. It was meant to show that we were sinful, and it was meant to drive us to a Messiah. It's kind of like this. Let's say you read a sign, you're at a park, and you see this sign, and that sign says, it forbids picking flowers. Do not pick the flowers. And you probably hadn't thought about picking the flowers when you entered the park, but as soon as you saw that sign, you sure did. Like, whoa, look at those. I think I'll go pick some. And that's what happens, right? Now, let me ask you, was there anything wrong with the sign? Is there something sinful, evil about the sign? No, sign's fine. It's the people that have the problem. And that's kind of how the law functions. God says, this is how you're to live. Love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want you to love others. I don't want you to covet stuff. Guess what we do? We do the opposite. And that's why he says the law came so that transgression would increase. But look at this, verse 20. But where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. The more we sin, God gives grace. It literally could be translated super abounded. God dealt with all of it. That is absolutely amazing. He, he dealt with everything, and he summarizes it all in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, and that's exactly how sin reigns, death, physical, spiritual, eternal, it's reigning. Look at this. Even so, grace God's unmerited, wonderful grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace literally overwhelms the life of those who believe. You just cannot believe how good our God is to us. And if you ever ask, like, why did God allow sin into our world? It's perhaps, we can't answer that fully, But you need to know that we are far better off. You see, Adam would have never understood the joy of redemption. Adam would have never become a joint heir with Christ. He would have never known the blessedness of forgiveness. God sought to brought glory to himself by manifesting his character through not only allowing sin to take place, but providing a savior and a messiah to address the issues, to take his people where they once were in Adam to a far greater place where they are now in Christ. And friends, that is the most important question. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? It is the great dividing line. Every single person here, you're either in Adam, 
you're in your sin, you are experiencing spiritual death, you are going to experience physical death, which will lead to your experience of eternal death. Or you're in Christ. Yes, you will pass away from this life only to enter the life of the come into the presence of the glorious king. And all the promises of scripture become sight and fully realized through the grace and the glory of Christ. What do you want? Do you want guilt? Are you really seriously happy the way things are going? There's a much better way. And it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and you trust and receive in him. You ever uh, flown out of Waco if you want to go someplace in the uh, country? Did you ever notice that we don't have options here? If you want to fly to any place, you get in a plane in Waco and it flies you to where? Dallas, right? If you want to go to Dallas, that's a great deal. But if you want to go anyplace else, Portland, San Francisco, Atlanta, you got to switch planes when you get to Dallas because it only takes you to Dallas. Adam only takes you one place. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Is that what you want? Well, if you want life, you want joy, forgiveness, peace, hope, that hole to be filled with the grace of God and to experience it for eternity, you've got to switch planes. You have got to enter into relationship with the living God. And so I want to encourage you, you want to reject man-made solutions to your sin. All you have to do is walk through just a bookstore and see that everybody's got a solution for you. This will make you happy. This will make you fulfilled. This is true spirituality, blah, 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 right? Friends, it's right here in the text. You need to trust in Christ. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? And you remain condemned in Adam until you are justified by faith in Christ. And friends, once you know the meaning of life, you are meant to be a messenger to those who desperately need the living Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for an amazing passage of Scripture. How you can just lay it out so clearly that we can see it in its brilliance. Who we are in Adam, now who we are in Christ, to know forgiveness, joy, grace. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who's never trusted you, they, they would simply pray with me and say, God, I, I, I finally understand it. And I turn from my sin and my selfishness. And like the text says, I want to receive the gift of grace, the gift of forgiveness in Christ. And so right now, I, I do that. I just place my faith in him. And Father, for all of us who know you, may we just rejoice in the goodness and the grace of Christ. May our hearts be light, like a flame that is set aglow in our hearts and lives that just simply show the wonders and the goodness and we rest in the marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've placed us in Christ for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.